So that would be on page 835 of the Blue Bibles under your chairs. So let's read what Matthew has to teach us about Christ and his resurrection. This is God's word. Next day, it is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, um, if what we just read isn't true, Everything we do here this morning is a waste of time. But because Jesus does have all authority and in heaven and on earth, he didn't stay in the tomb, he is alive. We need your help now to see the inheritance that we have that is greater than we can imagine. So this morning, open the eyes of our hearts, help us to see how wealthy we are 
in Christ. Show us what we have been given through faith. And Holy Spirit, give us the faith. We need, we need help to believe. So help us love those things of first importance, that Jesus was crucified for our sins, was buried and raised on the third day, as was promised according to the Scriptures. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the challenges of being a pastor is Easter comes every year. And so we talk about the resurrection at least once a year. And this year we get it twice. But really, because Christ is alive, we could sing Christ is risen today every day. He is alive and seated on his throne. But the hard part with familiarity is with familiarity can come great boredom or apathy. And so it's really hard for me as somebody who grew up in the church, and any of us who've been around the church for any length of time, to go on the emotional journey that the first disciples went on, from the depths of despair to the highest heights of joy and wonder and fear, you know, everything that they experienced when they saw Jesus in the flesh, as they touched him, as they ate with him, as they drank with him, you know, as they poked the holes in his side or in his hands. And <coughs> so what I want to do is try and draw you into the emotions of a good Friday, like the disciples who were there, and then we're going to ask, what difference does the, the resurrection make? But one of the ways that helps me experience once again what it's like to hear that Jesus died and was buried is to, to watch my kids hear it for the first time. They, they heard it first through analogy, through allegory from, uh, from the lion, witch, in the wardrobe. As Aslan, the lion, the one who represents Jesus in the story, right, is he's someone who has the power to melt winter, the long sadness, and whose very presence evokes confidence and strength in everyone around them. He's bound, he's flogged, he's whipped, he's killed on the stone table. And in our home, you know, as Jesus died, there was grief. You know, he died? How can somebody so strong die? They didn't know the end of the story. They didn't know that Aslan, like Jesus, rises from the dead. I mean, at that point, in the, in, as the tears flow, you might as well have read from Ecclesiastes that man and animal all go back to the dust. Here today, gone tomorrow. And one of the ways... Christians throughout history have tried to enter into the story is by celebrating what's called a tenebrae service, a, a Good Friday darkness, where they remember the crucifixion and the service ends with no talk of the resurrection. The lights are just snuffed out as Jesus is, breathes his last and everyone goes home. Or you could get Another way to enter into it is, is Shakespeare and Macbeth, right, where Shakespeare quoting scripture like Ecclesiastes here. He's like, life's but a walking shadow. Everyone's a poor player that is anxious and frets his hour upon the stage. Then you hear no more from them. It's a tale, tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. This is life. This is Good Friday without the resurrection. In a world without resurrection, there's no healing. There's no remembering of the dead beyond a few generations. 
the Cubs never win the World Series, <laughs> right? It's just a gloomy place because our tales have brief joys and end with tragedies that will be forgotten. And that's where the disciples are at. They have watched the one whom they loved from their own place of failure, and they see yet another crucified Messiah. Death reigns, as Paul would say, from Adam to Moses. Jesus seemingly is under death's reign. And so that Sunday morning with that ache of grief in their stomach, that dread in the in their minds and in their hearts, their tear ducts that are all too quickly flowing, Mary Magdalene and this other Mary come to the empty tomb and have their dreams just blown away. Confronted by a story that almost seems too good to be true, that Jesus is alive, he's physically resurrected from the dead, meaning that this person, Jesus, his heart started beating again as a human being. The blood that bought us peace with God started flowing through his veins. His lungs started taking air in and out. When he was fully human, he was physically, bodily resurrected, and he walked out of the tomb. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. (laughs) How do you, what difference does it make that Jesus is alive And what difference does it make to you and your Good Friday experiences of sin, of failure, and sadness? And what we're being confronted with is what um, Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, it's what he calls the cross and resurrection. It's a good term. It's called a eucatastrophe. Greek word for you, E-U, it just means good. He says the cross is good because of the resurrection and a catastrophe is what all the good stories do, is they lead you to a place of despair, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, your breath is taken away because it takes a surprising, joyous turn. That's what we have this morning in the resurrection. Jesus is alive. And in a world where death reigns, nobody saw that coming. And this is the message that gathers us all together. This is the message that sends us. This is what makes us Christian. We exist today. Because of this good catastrophe, the cross and resurrection. And so what do you do with that? Right? What do you do with the true story of the resurrection? It's verified by a multitude of witnesses. And what Matthew's going to do is he's, he's intentionally trying to make you a disciple here. right? And if you are a disciple, to deepen your discipleship. But what he's going to do is he's going to go after your skepticism. Which has been formed by years of living in a Good Friday world. He's saying, look, Jesus is alive. They touched his feet. They worshipped. I mean, others would say we ate and drank with him. He is alive. This is a historical reality. When we say Christianity is good news, good news is an historical announcement of something that happened in real space, in real time. It's just as real as our current president and past presidents, right? It's history, and it's true. This is the story of the real world. And I know I need to say that because everybody outside of this building is saying, it's just, sure, it's true for you. But that's not what Matthew's trying to get you to believe and to see. He's saying that Jesus 
is alive, and because he's alive, he has the right to tell you what to do, and he promises to really be with you until the end of the age. So this is not true. (laughs) Paul says we're just wasting our time. We should be a people who are most pitied if Jesus is not alive. Meaning if, if the resurrection is not real, you shouldn't pray, you shouldn't be in church, you shouldn't worship him. This might be meaningful to you personally, but it doesn't mean anything in the bigger picture. If Matthew is lying, it's a good story. But Paul says it's not worth your time because it's a waste. And this is what I hear around town, <laughs> is your religion's good for morals, teaching your kids to be kind. Uh, this is a scary world. We have Good Friday experiences. We need comfort, hope to get through the hardships of life. But it doesn't matter whether it's true. What matters is whether it's helpful. And Matthew and Luke and Mark and John, the whole New Testament is all arguing the same thing. It doesn't matter whether it's helpful. What matters first is whether or not it's true. So, to do that, knowing the context in which we speak and the world that you're going to go back into on Monday morning, we want to do two things. We need to be able to to talk about the resurrection as history, and then we need to talk about the resurrection as theology. And so, I want to equip you, this is my pastoral mindset, and I want to equip you to be able to talk about the resurrection as a historical reality, to argue with your doubts and the doubts of your neighbor. Peter says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope you have. That's part of doing that is doing history. And then we'll talk about what difference does it make. So that's the first point. Jesus is risen, really. (laughs) This is a true story. If you look at the passage, what's interesting is Matthew has the, the facts of what's happened sandwiched by doubt and skepticism. Because right, you have the chief priests who say Jesus said he's going to rise from the dead, but even if he does, we're not going to believe him. So let's, let's put up a guard. Pilate, give us some soldiers to make sure that there's no lies spread because that lie that Jesus is alive is going to be worse than Jesus' first drama that he came and we got rid of. Right, and then in 28.11 to 15, They tell a lie. The religious leaders, they conspire to to spread fake news. They said while the soldiers were sleeping, the disciples snuck in and took the body. And that argument, narrative, story exists to this day. And that is still true. Just kind of a silly argument. Because if you're sleeping, how do you know who stole the body? Doubts aren't always rational. So... You got this sandwich of skepticism and truth, and in the middle are the facts of what happened. And so the question this morning is, where are you? Are you more skeptical? Are you with the Marys, full of wonder, fear, and joy, grabbing on Jesus' feet and saying, this is the best news I've ever heard? This is, this is the question. Every human being has to answer this question, is Jesus alive? Because of what he said. This is a good place. We're at the end of Matthew to remember a little bit of what Jesus said in Matthew. If Jesus is alive, this is the proof of the, the, the linchpin on which all of his claims that came before. So Matthew 7. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ends with, anyone who doesn't listen to me is a fool. You're building your house on sand. Everyone who listens to me and my words and does them is like a person who builds their house, their life on a rock. No normal person says that. Uh, Matthew 11, Jesus says, I am the only way anyone has a real relationship with the God who is my father. That the only people who come to know the real God are through Jesus. And if you come to Jesus, he's for everybody who's exhausted from trying to get to God on their own by their own good works. But the only way to get to God is through Jesus. And then he moves on in Matthew 11 to say that the only way you're going to get to God is to pass through judgment. And the only way to get through God's judgment is through me. That's a big statement. All roads to heaven Come through me. And then in Matthew 26, that we talked about about a month ago, Jesus said, while on trial, I am the one who is the judge here. (laughs) The one who will judge every tongue, every tribe, every nation. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And it's true now as it is after my resurrection. Judgment day is real. I'll be there waiting for you, is what Jesus is saying. And then, of course, the book ends with Jesus saying everything in this universe, this cosmos, everything created is mine. And the only way to get into a God's kingdom, into a relationship with God, to be God's beloved child, the one he's not angry at, is to come to Jesus, to be baptized and to follow him. Right, these are big claims and all of that stands on whether or not Jesus is really alive. That your whole life has been aiming for and building up to um, a confrontation, a meeting point with this Jesus. And you're either going to meet him here and now and receive his grace or you'll meet him at the end of your life after death and receive his judgment. That's Matthew. Do you believe that? (laughs) These are big claims, so you have to answer that question. Who is Jesus, and is he really alive? And so as you go to the passage, we have good historical reasons to believe this is is not just a legend that was made up later. This is not just a fairy tale that sounds wonderful. This is history. This is truth. And so what I want to do for a moment is put on my professional historian hat. Really, I'm borrowing it from someone else who's a professional. A guy named Gary Habermas is a historian who lives in this world about proving the resurrection to the best of our ability from a distance. <laughs> and it's, I want to try and convince you historically, this is real. So that you can be who Jesus calls you to be, a witness of these events. Tell others, I exist joyful in sadness because Jesus was alive. And now, a couple uh, qualifications. I'm not an evidentialist, meaning I'd, I assume that you and I have desires that control what we want. And it doesn't matter how convincing the facts are unless the Holy Spirit convinces you of it to be true. What we do is we present evidence, we present facts to support our faith, to try and convince you to believe, but we're trusting that, that Jesus is after you. And so, Habermas has five Five common sense ways of looking at history. When I say these, you're going to be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. This is what I would come up with if I had thought about it. 
Right? Testimony of multiple witnesses are more reliable than just one. Makes more sense. You tend to believe more people than just one person saying something that is miraculous. Uh, Second, affirmation of hostile sources that something happened is usually considered to be a stronger testimony than a friendly one because of bias. Meaning, when your enemies say something happened, that that is stronger evidence than when people who agree with it say, yeah, that happened. Right? If we put it this way, when Democrats and Republicans come together and say this happened, right, it's stronger evidence when enemies get along and play nice. Third, people tend to not make up details about a story that makes their position weak. Right? If I want to make up a lie, I want it to be as strong of a lie as possible, and so I want to make it as believable as possible. And fourth, Eyewitness testimony, you want somebody who was there, is better than somebody who was not there. And then fifth, testimony, if you're looking at history, you want it to be as close to the event as possible. So if you have testimony that this happened within 150 years, that's better if you read about it 500 years later. Does that make sense? Like I said, this is all common sense, but until you put it all together, we don't think about it that way. And so if you look at our passage... You have multiple witnesses. You got two Marys, and at minimum the eleven disciples. And if you open it up to the New Testament, Paul says Jesus appeared to more than five hundred people at once. And if if it was just the traditional way of keeping count, they only counted the men. It could have been as many as a thousand. Meaning, when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't do it in a corner and didn't show up to anybody. Or just one person. This isn't one private spiritual experience in a cave in the darkness where nobody can verify it. This is, this is They have names written down in the New Testament because in that day you could go find them by name. You have hostile sources saying the tomb is empty. The Jewish leaders are saying the body is gone. Where to go? The easiest thing the Jews could have done is just that those the enemies of Jesus they could have just produced the body. And then you could add, historically, there are at least nine non-Christian historical sources from that time period within 150 years of saying Jesus existed. Third, I said that people tend to not make up details. It weakens their story. When Matthew makes the two Marys the first witnesses, that sounds absolutely ridiculous to first century readers. Because in their ancient world, women were not allowed to testify in court. Sorry this is offensive to women. I know you, you are reliable witnesses. We made progress. But in the ancient world, that's how it worked. And so if you're going to make up a story that Jesus rose from the dead, you would have him showing up to Peter. And Peter saying, yeah, I knew it all along, Jesus. <laughs> right? Not that nobody doubt, no, that people doubted and not that there were women. See, I mean, you can get an idea. This guy named Celsus was an ancient skeptic 80 years after. says, who really saw the resurrection? A bunch of hysterical women? Really? That's all you got? Meaning, if you're going to make up a lie, you wouldn't include the Marys. 
Look at how honoring Christianity is to male and female together. The women are the first witnesses because that's what happened. It's history. And one historian says, if you assume that the gospel writers were making up a conspiracy theory, fabricating Christian fiction, then they would have done a better job of it. This is what happened. Then you have eyewitness testimony. These people are there. Mark includes names. Matthew includes names. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, I mean, he makes a list of names. Paul on the road to Damascus says one or two years later, this happened to me. I saw Jesus. All these people are saying something happened. They, They saw the risen Jesus. I mean, most historians now, whether they believe the story or not, say the disciples saw the risen Jesus. I just don't know what to do with it. I know as a historian I saw something. And then one, one last thing that will help build your faith that I found really helpful is that testimony from people who were closer to the events are better than later. And so if you count all the sources, we have about 42 different historical sources within 150 years of Jesus' resurrection. And within the first year, this is what the historians conclude, they were saying Jesus was the author of life, divinity. This is what the first witnesses were saying. Jesus was God, and he rose from the dead. Some go as close to six months after the resurrection. And they're just doing their, their history timeline. And so just by way of comparison, go back to your high school history class, Alexander the Great, that famous general who conquered the, the, the known world from Greece to India. Right? He died at, at age 33. Everything we learned about that guy and you were tested on and, and either succeeded or failed, and I'm bringing up bad memories. You know how far apart those sources are? 300 years. How many generations passed before they say, let's talk about Alexander the Great? The Gospel of Matthew was written 35 years after Jesus rose from the dead. Mark was even sooner. 1 Corinthians. I mean, all these letters are within the immediate aftermath of the events. That is to say, when we say come and become a Christian and follow the risen Jesus, we're, we're not just saying take a blind leap in the dark. People have done some real hard work to say this is true. And we can believe it's true. We still have to trust the witnesses. Saying the scriptures are reliable is ultimately where they conclude. That's where you stand. That these people saw these events. Jesus is alive. It's historical. Now, Matthew says this is history, but he's after your heart. So this first point was about your head, trying to get your mind wrapped around some history. Matthew wants you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, be baptized, and to follow this Jesus all the days of your life because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so what what I want you to be able to do is take these things we talked about historically and use them. You're a witness. That's who you are as a Christian. You know, when people when it comes up in conversation and say, I'm not making this stuff up, you have to decide whether Jesus is real. But know that he has convinced people from Europe, from Asia, from Africa, from Latin America, and people who are no dummies, who are smarter than me, <laughs> that this stuff happened. 
has had a real spiritual experience with the risen Jesus, even now, 2,000 years later. But this helps me, and I hope it helps you. Because what it's telling you and I to do when you read Matthew, when you read Mark, when you read Luke, when you read John, when life really stinks and you're in the middle of your Good Friday experiences, to go back and say, what I believe is not a figment of my imagination. It's rooted in real life. Resurrection is real, which means heaven. The resurrection of Christ is real, which means heaven is coming. Which leads to the second point. If Jesus is alive, he can say to us, don't be afraid. That's the thing that's said over and over again in this account. Because it's so unbelievable, they're terrified. The the guards see an angel who looks bright as lightning, clothes white as snow. The women are afraid. The disciples are afraid. They're saying this is real. But because Jesus is alive, and this is the pastoral point I want to make, it confronts your fears. The first point was after your mind, this is after your heart. It's saying, because Jesus is alive, use that truth to beat down your fears. See, the interpretation of why the resurrection matters theologically, that's the end of the book, verses 18 to 20, which we'll look at in more detail next week. But here's why you should not be afraid. Because Jesus is alive... Absolutely everything is in Jesus' hands. All authority in heaven and on earth are given to me. If I can put it this way, Jesus' resurrection vindicates him. I know vindicate is not a word you use very often. But this is what people say to Jesus. You, You claim to be the Son of God. Prove it. Give me a sign. Justify yourself. Vindicate your claim. Show me that you are indeed the one who holds the cosmos into your hands. And the resurrection is the proof. The last time you saw Jesus, God was pouring out his anger and his wrath, and he went into the ground. If we had nothing else, all we would think was that Jesus was just another fraud. But when God raised Jesus from the dead... Today, Jesus, you are my son, whom I love, whom I've begotten, and whom I'm well pleased. I am installing you as my king with all authority on heaven and on earth. See, when God raised Jesus from the dead, it's the ultimate proof that Jesus was innocent and he was raised and put into the position of the highest honor because he was the perfect sacrifice. That's the only reason that Jesus would be given this kind of responsibility to be, to be the exalted Son of God that he earned in his humanity for us. See, Paul would go on to say, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said he was all along. And God agrees with him. He raised him from the dead. (laughs) And because God agrees with him, don't be afraid. All authority is given to him. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so when Mary Magdalene and Mary come and they are confronted with this risen Jesus, he he can say, don't be afraid. 
no matter what you will go through from now to the end of the age, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I won't leave you alone, really, truly. He can say to the disciples, don't be afraid. I know you feel like failures because you have not measured up to anything that I've taught you up to this point. (laughs) The Sermon on the Mount, you blew it. Peter, you said you would stay with me, dying for me. You blew it. I died for you. Look at how Jesus, the risen Jesus, goes after your fears of failure. Jesus says in verse 10, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Tell my brothers, Jesus says. Tell my brothers. He claims them as family, even when they left him alone to die. They're experiencing the forgiveness before Jesus even tells them in word. That experience can be yours if you would come to faith in the risen Jesus. To be called Jesus' brother or sister. To become God's beloved child if you would come to him through faith. Because one of the things, if if Jesus' resurrection vindicates Jesus and says, you are the beloved son of God, one of the things that Paul would go on to say, if Jesus is alive, that vindicates and justifies every Christian. Right? That Jesus was raised for your justification. Meaning that when Jesus rose from the dead, God accepted all of those who were in Christ as perfect. As if you'd never done anything wrong in the first place. As if you'd always kept God's law. As if it was your delight day and night. As if you'd fulfilled Psalm 1. Blessed is the person who meditates day and night on the word of the Lord. Why would you be afraid of failure if you're given grace from the get-go and then the comforting presence and help of your God to keep his law? Last thing. (coughs) If you're afraid of failure, the resurrection is calling you to come and trust and believe that the resurrection is the ultimate sign of grace. But it's also going after our tragedies, right? So what? one of the things that the resurrection is going to do for you and I is if Jesus' life is, can be described as a good catastrophe because he was risen from the grave, that means we can turn around and look at our suffering and our sickness and our trial and say, because I am in Christ through faith, all of my trials and all of my tragedies, they don't feel good right now. But God will work it out for my good. And that is a, an astounding thing that you and I, because Jesus is really alive, and this is why the resurrection is helpful, because it's true, is that there is a surprising joy that will follow all of your sorrows. We sang it. He will swallow up death and wipe away the tears from our faces. Right. I mean, that's where we started with this idea of a you catastrophe, that it's a good story, it's a good tragedy, it's, it's a, a surprising turn that takes your breath away, an unexpected triumph after seeming defeat. And we live day in and day out, seemingly on Good Friday, trying to carry our guilt, 
and trying to get, get through the darkness. And the resurrection says you don't have to. <laughs> Jesus is alive. One day all things sad will come untrue. You will bodily raise from, from the dead just like Jesus did. He will raise you up. And so this is how I want to conclude is, is do you know how to do that? Do you know how to connect your sorrows and your sins to the resurrection? I know as a pastor, I talk a lot about the death of Christ. Usually when we talk about the death of Christ, we're assuming the resurrection. But the resurrection really is the linchpin on which your forgiveness stands, on which your position with God stands, on whether or not you will get through judgment, on whether or not your story will have a happy ending. Everything stands on the resurrection of Christ. What does God think of you right now? Your life is hidden with God in Christ on high with the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He can't be mad at you. You were baptized into the story where Jesus took all that anger. And so if you're in the midst of defeat, I want to counsel you. You know, before the resurrection, everyone was chained to death. Now, after the resurrection, through faith, you get chained to eternal life, Jesus himself. And it's not bondage, it's freedom. Tolkien would go on to say about the gospel, (laughs) that is the best story that you've ever heard because it's true. That the gospel is, that he says, there is no story that has ever been told that we long to be true. And there is no story that has convinced so many skeptics to accept it's true just by reading what happened. They went and investigated the facts. But if you reject this story, you're going to be left with your your sadness, your Good Friday experiences, or you'll be left alone to bear God's anger, wrath, and judgment and chained to death. So the question is, is will you embrace the risen Christ who embraced you before the foundation of the world (laughs) to bear your sins for you on the cross. See, all it takes to become a Christian is really simple. I accept what Jesus has done for me. And I don't deserve an ounce of his goodness. But because he is alive and risen and says, come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's, That's good news. And it's good news because it's true. And that's what demands my faith. So go and learn what that means. He is really alive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us truth. You've given us reality. You've opened our eyes to see how the world really is. And so we thank you for the resurrection. I pray you would, if there are those who have doubts, you would give them the, the courage to ask questions. And you would give us the wisdom to know how to answer those questions, to point them to the truth of the scriptures, to the reality of the resurrection, to a Savior who loves us more than we can imagine, despite us being more sinful than we would ever care to admit. And so may the resurrection deepen our faith and strengthen our witness so that we might well do what Jesus calls us to do, go and make disciples of all nations, following our our crucified and risen captain and king, the Lord of lords.
So we thank you and praise you for this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.